that the Catholic Church is what scripturally one must call an apostate church. Now, in answering that about the Catholic Church, um, you'll also see how it applies much more widely than simply the Catholic Church. Because if we're to say, um, what's the difference between, shall we say, us and the Catholic Church? You see, the answer doesn't lie so much in different doctrines. It's certainly true that they have certain doctrines that we would say no to, all right? But they're not the real problem. That is simply the symptom of the basic thing that makes the Church of the Catholics wrong. And it's basically this. You see, for us as Christians, and this is vitally important for us to understand, for us, you see, it's a question of final authority. What is your final authority? You see, the point is that if you don't have a final authority in matters of truth, then what happens is it's over to you to make your own mind up, you see. And then you get the situation where you get different people who've got different ideas. But without a final authority, no one can say which ideas are right and wrong, and you're lost. Now, the point is that for us as Christians, our final authority is the Bible. Can you see that? So that, the, I mean, if we want to know what is right or wrong, we turn to the Bible. And if the Bible says it, it's right. Can you see what I mean? So for us, the final authority is the Scripture. Now, in regards to Christians who believe the Bible, I'm going to make one statement about them, uh, or us, and this may surprise you, but it's very, very important. In your life, the final authority in your life is not Jesus, it's the Bible. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. You see, the whole point is, obviously, Jesus is our Lord. But the thing is, Jesus, God has revealed his will, his character, his purpose, and his holiness and his standards through the Bible. Now, the Bible also tells us about Jesus. Of course it does. But the point is, any teaching that we get from Jesus is here in the Bible. Now, sometimes you get a phenomenon amongst Christians where, and I've heard of things like this, where you get someone um, who's maybe sort of living with their girlfriend, all right, and you talk to them about it and you say that it's wrong. And uh, they say, well, I've prayed about it and I've got peace about it. The Lord wants me to. Now, can you see that there they are putting, as it were, the authority of Jesus above the Bible? And of course, they're getting it wrong because the Bible tells them in that situation what God's will is, all right? So any situation where apparently Jesus is leading you against the scriptures, then you know it's not Jesus at all, it's the devil. Can you see what I mean by the Bible being the final authority? Now, even for a lot of people who are born again and filled with the Spirit, and I've spoken to Christians who say this, and that what they do is they say that what really matters about guidance, it's, it's not kind of what the Bible says, full stop, it's the particular bit of the Bible that God is enlightening to you at that moment in time. So, that, for instance, we knew some friends, um, or have got some friends. Um, now, in, in their history, they've both been married to Christians, and they have both divorced, all right? 
Now, this was illegitimate divorce. Neither of them had any grounds for divorce at all. So here were two divorced Christians. Now, they met and fell in love, no problem there, but they wanted to get married. Now, in that situation, now there are certain situations that the Bible says a divorcee can remarry, no problem. But theirs wasn't one of those situations. Now, what happened was, they were perfectly aware that the Bible said they shouldn't. But they felt that the Spirit was leading them through certain passages to go ahead anyway. And what they said was, that the Holy Spirit was kind of enlightening to us certain bits of the Bible that seemed to give the go-ahead, and the bits in the Bible that said we shouldn't, they weren't what the Holy Spirit was showing to us. And can you see, they went ahead and got married. Now that's wrong, because the point is that the Holy Spirit will lead us through the Scriptures, and that if the Bible says something, it is certainly right, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not going to lead against that. And these are all kind of the dangers involved in having an authority that's greater than the Bible. Now for me, as a Christian, I'm aware that I must submit to what the Bible says. Nothing else but to what the Scripture says. But if I get in a situation where I'm being led counter to the Bible, claiming it's the Holy Spirit leading me, can you see I've been taken in and it's Satan who's doing it. So the issue, the question, is what is your final authority? And as Christians, the final authority for us in all things is the Bible itself. Now, this is the very issue why the Catholic Church is wrong. It's not the specific doctrines they have, although they also are wrong. But the real problem or divide, if you like, between them and us is quite simply this. The Catholics believe that the Bible is authoritative as God's word. But they believe that the authority of the church is equal to that of the Bible. Can you see what I mean? For us, we're saying the Bible is the final authority. And that I would say quite clearly from the scriptures that the church is not the final authority. Any church can be a bit wrong. This is why if uh, an elder or leader in your church starts leading you astray, you don't have to listen to him. You correct him by the scripture, and if he doesn't stand corrected, you get out. Can you see what I mean? The final authority is God himself. But with the Catholic Church, they believe that their tradition as the church over hundreds of years is as authoritative as the Bible. And of course, what's happened as the years have gone by is in fact now what they really accept is that the authority of the church is greater than the authority of the Bible. Can you see what I'm driving at here? Therefore, as soon as you get to the point where you've got an authority above the scripture, there is no longer any way to test what's happening because the only way we've got to test anything that God does is the Bible. Hence the idea of the infallibility of the Pope in certain things. That there are certain theological and doctrinal and moral issues, which apparently when the Pope speaks, that is the infallible word of God. But, very often, that the Pope can say things which go against the Bible. But the point is the Pope, being the head of the church, is the final authority. 
Now, can you see that once you've got a situation like that, where the Bible, the scripture, is no longer the final authority for you, then all kinds of error can start to creep in. And this is exactly what's happened in the church amongst the Catholics. Um, you get sort of things sort of slipped in like Mary. All right. And in fact, that's quite a good e example. All right. Because one of the things that the Bible saves us from obviously is wrong thinking wrong teaching is corrected by the Bible and there's one area where the Holy Spirit loves to deceive people more than any other and it's the area of the person and the character and the nature of Jesus himself and Satan loves to attack that in fact the final test for whether someone is a believer or a total satanic apostate is whether or not he believes in Jesus being the Son of God. Yeah? Do you mean the, the devil? Oh, sorry, yeah. The devil. Sorry. Right, sorry. Yeah, yeah. But where Satan wants to deceive people more than any, any other area is in the whole area of Jesus himself. Now, the point is this the Bible tells us quite simply that when God became a man in Jesus, he became an ordinary man. Now, Jesus never sinned because from start to finish he was dependent upon his Father in heaven. Jesus never sinned. But apart from that, he was a totally ordinary man. Now, the greatest enemy that we've got is religion. Now, true Christianity is when God reaches down and lays hold of a man through Jesus. Religion reaches up to God and the difference is that for religious people they're doing it when I got converted I didn't do it God did it many years before I got converted I was reaching up to God in my own way but that was religion with a fair amount of occultism mixed in as well but true faith is when God reaches down and does something to a man religion is man striving to do something for God and of course if you strive to do something for God you cannot be saved obviously if someone wants to be saved and then strives and does things for God that's the opposite of how to get saved you see so uh, if Satan can get people to stay all sort of religious and committed to God like that then he drags them into the lake of fire with himself so the point is that when the Bible tells us that Jesus became an ordinary man can you see that for religious people, that's a little bit too much? Now, you often find, even amongst us lot, true Christians, that when you examine what you feel about Jesus, and if you look back over your Christian life, I'll bet that for most of you, if you've erred in your thinking or understanding of Jesus, it's this, in your mind, you have been far too aware of the emphasis of Jesus being God, which indeed he was. But you haven't been half as aware of the fact that he became a man. Can you see what I'm driving at? Hence the need for Christians all the time to spiritualize Jesus. You see what I mean? Um, all the time in all the paintings of him, him having a halo, all this sort of thing. We try to make Jesus more than a man. He wasn't more than a man. Jesus was a man who was God as well. But being God didn't make Jesus more than a man. Can you see what I'm saying? 
If God does something, he does it properly. He does it perfectly. And when God wanted to become a man, he did it properly. He did it perfectly. Jesus was an ordinary man like you and I. When he came down to earth and was born as a baby, in Philippians 2 it tells us that he emptied himself. He laid aside his glory and he left that in heaven. He laid aside his power and he left that in heaven. He could have had it if he wanted, but it would have been no use because men don't have the glory and power of God of themselves. So Jesus divested himself of the power and the glory that was his by right as God. And he came to be a man. And as Jesus grew up, for instance, when he healed someone, and I've often said this, in a very technical sense, now don't get me wrong on this, but in a very technical sense, Jesus didn't heal anyone. When Jesus commanded someone to be healed, he was using the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Of himself, if Jesus hadn't laid his power and glory aside, Jesus of himself could do anything. But he laid it aside to become a man. And once he became a man, he refused to have any advantage over you and I. All right. So when he healed someone, he just trusted that the Holy Spirit would move through him in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, just like you and I. We can't heal, but we've prayed for healing tonight, and the Holy Spirit has ministered through the gifts. Now, in exactly the same way, when Jesus was on earth as a man, he couldn't heal anyone. He could have done if he wanted to, but he laid that aside to identify with us, and he simply moved in the gifts of the Holy Spirit by faith. Often you get times when Jesus knew what men was thinking. And I always had the picture that because he was God, he was reading their minds. Now, Jesus, before he came to earth, and in all his glory and power as God himself, could read men's minds. Of course he could. But Jesus laid all that aside. And Jesus couldn't read minds. Jesus of himself couldn't look into a man's heart and know what he was thinking but he moved in the word of knowledge. Can you see, in exactly the same way that you and I do, that is what Jesus did. Even with victory over sin, Jesus did not have any intrinsic protection against sin. It was as possible for Jesus to fall into sin as it is for us to fall into sin. But Jesus never did sin, but the reason he didn't sin wasn't because he was impervious to it or immune to it. I mean, it would be ridiculous for Satan to tempt Jesus if he was beyond temptation. Jesus could have sinned, just the same as us. But he lived perpetually in total dependence on the power of his Father and therefore never did sin. And that is exactly how you and I can stay free from sin. The difference between Jesus and us is that we don't. You know, we gratify ourselves, but Jesus didn't. And he maintained that constant victory over sin and temptation because of his reliance utterly and totally on the Father. Do you remember, Jesus would say things, I do nothing of myself. I do only what I see the Father doing. Because he laid aside his glory. He laid aside his power. He didn't stop being God. Because if you're God, you're God. You can't stop being God, even if you change form. But when God became a man, when the second person of the Trinity became a man, he became a real man, a genuine man, a man, we're told, who can identify with us in all our weaknesses and in all our temptations. Now then, can you see... Now, that is shocking, even for quite a few born-again Christians, that is. 
because we're not accustomed to thinking like that are we you know we have this picture of a you know sort of Jesus sort of walking around and if you really look closely his feet were too you know his feet were inches off the ground he was walking on air and this is the picture we have of him this kind of spiritual superman you know that if you brushed up against him you'd oh it's God you wouldn't if you'd have walked past Jesus you'd have walked past an ordinary man there were times when Jesus revealed his glory but not all the time by any means Jesus was an ordinary man now for religious folk that's a bit heavy they don't like that and the reason they don't like it is because religious folk are very very uptight about God's honor now it's right that we're keen to maintain the honor of God that's certainly true but the point is religious people tend to be very very fearful lest God gets sort of brought down lower than he really is you see and they like to keep God up there and they like to keep God out of the way. Can you see? Nice and safe. We want to believe in him. We want to do things for him. But we want him out there. We don't want him too close to us, you see. And it's exactly the same. For God to become an ordinary man is too close. All right? It's too close for comfort for people who want to be religious. So what you see is this desire for people to make Jesus in their minds more than what he actually was. Jesus became an ordinary man. Alright? But, Val, you have a question? If Jesus had sinned as an ordinary man, that would have meant God had sinned. That's right. That would have meant the second person of the Trinity, having revealed himself in the form of a man, had fallen into sin. And the whole plan of redemption would have gone up the spout. But it Jesus never did. It was possible for the second person of the Trinity, once he became a man, to sin. Of course it was possible. You see, Jesus... Now, the one difference is, Jesus wasn't born with a sinful nature. The sinful nature... I mean, you and I sin because we're sinners. We're born with a sinful nature. That was passed on um, through the Father. All right? So, Jesus didn't have a human father so Jesus didn't have a sinful nature and if you're born with a sinful nature every baby even before it's consciously sinned needs the salvation of Jesus because it's got a sinful nature now that's the one thing where Jesus was different from us but the point is this Jesus when he became a man was simply the same as Adam before he sinned you see Adam didn't have a sinful nature did he not at all. He was created perfect in the likeness of God. But when temptation came along, Adam succumbed to it. And as surely as Adam could, Jesus potentially could have done. But the point is, such was his love that he didn't. He relied totally on his father. So in answer to the question, could Jesus have sinned, the answer is an absolute resounding yes. Of course he could have done. But the glory of Jesus is that he didn't. That's the gospel. The glory of Jesus is that he carried it through. <coughs> Can you see that? But yes, Jesus could have sinned. So he couldn't sin when he was a child, and he was a toddler, like toddlers went their own way. And they sinned, because they've got a sinful nature, but it's Jesus had got a sinful nature. That's right. He didn't sin, because no. children sin, don't they? No, that's right. As a child, that's right. As a child, Jesus wouldn't have sinned, because he didn't have the sinful nature. But the point is, as soon as he reached the age of sort of accountability, he still didn't sin. Can you see what I mean? Uh, when every temptation was put in his way, still Jesus didn't sin. All right. But the reason he didn't, I emphasize, 
isn't because he had an immunity to sin it was because he simply trusted on his father to get him through now the basic line of argument I'm taking is this is that religion wants to elevate Jesus to make him more than he actually was I'm saying when God becomes a man he does it properly all right and in fact the very test of a true believer is does he believe that the Son of God came in the flesh that is the test he who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist can you see this is the very final test of whether someone's a believer do they believe that God was manifest in the flesh and in the flesh means as an ordinary human being it's one of the meanings of the flesh in the Bible now religion aided by Satan wants to get away from that that's too close for comfort and they want to elevate Jesus above what he actually was as a man now then the way they do it is this above everything else they want to have it so that no way could Jesus have sinned now we know from the Bible that Jesus could have sinned but the glory of the gospel is that he didn't sin that's the glory of it he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin that's the glory of Jesus for us but the point is Satan wants to get people having Jesus at a place where he couldn't sin where he couldn't possibly sin all right now then once you've got him if you picture Jesus in a place where he couldn't sin then your Jesus is no longer a man can you see the point he's no longer an ordinary man Jesus was born in the likeness of sinful flesh so then what happens is people want to protect Jesus from that now then we know from the scripture that the sinful nature is passed through um, the father through the man therefore Jesus didn't have a sinful nature Mary did alright Jesus was born of Mary but remember his father was God himself so Jesus didn't have a sinful nature by virtue of the fact he didn't have a human father but he had a mother who did have a sinful nature because Mary was an ordinary sinner just like us but remember the sinful nature is not passed through the man through the woman it's passed through the man now it's fascinating at this point what the Catholics do in regards to Mary remember the heart of the gospel is that God became a man God was manifest in the flesh and religion fights against that that basic fundamental truth it fights against it because religion is finally of the spirit of Antichrist so what the Catholics do is that they then come up with the doctrine that Mary was born of a virgin birth and that Mary had an immaculate birth so what they then do it's not enough for them that Jesus didn't have an earthly father and therefore didn't have a sin nature but they wanted in order to try and protect this funny notion of the honor of Jesus they then come up with the doctrine that Mary was born without a sinful nature as well and can you see it's not enough for them that Jesus never sinned they then want to have it that Mary never sinned and can you see that protects any possibility that Jesus could have ever sinned you see what I'm getting at so suddenly what happens is they're trying to sort of elevate Jesus to a place beyond sin 
And so they take his mum and they say, Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary. Mary didn't have a sin nature. She wasn't born in sin. So suddenly, Jesus, we know his father was sinless because his father was God the Father. But now we find out he's got a sinless mother. We then later discover that Mary ascended into heaven just like Jesus did. Now, can you see what's happening? As soon as that happens, Jesus ceases to be an ordinary man. You see what I'm getting at? If Mary was immaculate as well, then no way was Jesus an ordinary man. Here's the whole point. And this thing about venerating Mary, it's to try and, and protect any idea that the Son of God could have ever fallen into sin. When, of course, the whole point of the Gospel is that God became a man. And because he became an ordinary man, a man is open to temptation. Yet the glory of the Gospel is that Jesus never sinned. Now the sort of religious folk come along saying, that's right, amen, Jesus never sinned. But they then want to go one step further to say he couldn't sin. And one of the reasons he couldn't sin is not only was his father God in heaven, but his mother was born without sin as well. And can you see they're adding to the Gospel left, right and centre. Now what actually happens in the result of that? Remember they're trying to protect Jesus from the charge of could he sin or not. Which is silly because Jesus is innocent of that charge. He's already lived his life on earth and he already passed the test. He didn't sin. There's no need to protect Jesus from something he never did. Jesus never sinned. But in order to sort of protect him that much more they have to start venerating his mum, Mary, alright? So Mary ends up, logical conclusion, the Queen of Heaven. Now, in their desire to protect Jesus from anyone having the false idea that he was less than he is, can you see what happens is that they end up venerating someone as much as Jesus. Because in order to do that to Jesus, his mother, in actual fact, becomes more important than Jesus himself. Can you see the kind of thing I'm trying to say here. And that in actual fact now, for the Catholics, real prayer is to Mary and the saints, it's not to Jesus. And that in actual fact now, for the Catholics, Jesus plays second fiddle to Mary. Now, can you see what I'm trying to say here? That if you've got a situation where the Bible isn't your sole and final authority, then you get all this myth that wraps itself around the truth. And when you get a myth and this whole thing about, you know, sort of Mary, I mean, it's like stuff that, for instance, um, she was born sinless. Rubbish. The Bible says all have sinned. Uh, that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Can you see, Jesus' mother was too holy to make love to her husband when there is nothing unholy about making love to your husband. Can you see what I'm saying? That's what religion does, you see. It, I mean, it, it, it sort of, it pushes everything back out of the real world. Can you see what I'm getting at? And the whole point of the Gospel is that God in Jesus came to save the real world. So you get all this myth about Mary and eventually she ascended. Of course she didn't ascend, she died just like anyone else did. We don't know how, but she did. And I mean, this thing about that she never made love to Mary, she remained a virgin. Very, very difficult to explain. You, sorry? She made love to Mary. Oh, so, sorry, her husband. Yeah. That she remained a virgin throughout the rest of her life. But then, it's very, very hard to explain how it was that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Unless we're to believe that they were all virgin births as well. Can you see how lunatic 
it actually gets. Now, this is what happens as soon as you have an authority that is greater than the Bible. Because it's the Bible itself that delivers us from that kind of stupidity. I can understand somebody sitting down and thinking, well, okay, yeah, I mean, sort of God became a man, Jesus was God, and uh, we know he didn't have a human father, but I don't understand this thing about Mary. I wonder, could Mary have passed on a sinful nature to Jesus? Now, if that, if that was true, then you would need to have Mary born sinless. But you see, the thing is that you really haven't got a problem at all, because it's the Bible that tells us that the sinful nature is passed on by the man. Therefore, the problem doesn't happen. You see what I'm getting at? So the point is that if the Bible is your final authority, then this problem all falls away, and as soon as you start to go up as a sort of uh, formulate an idea that may sound very spiritual, but it's wrong, then it's the Bible that shows you that it's wrong. And, I mean, it's like all the weird doctrines they've got in the Catholics. I mean, it's like the infallibility of the Pope. Well, of course, they need that doctrine because in order to hold together, they believe in the total authority of the Church. They say they believe in the Bible. And they say that the Bible is authoritative. But the truth of the matter is, they put the authority of the Church, the Catholic Church, above the authority of the Bible. So if you're going to do that, you've got to make the Pope infallible. Can you see what I mean? And all the doctrines that have evolved over these hundreds of years are simply all needed to uphold the system once you've got to the place where you're saying the Bible is no longer your final authority. Because you've got to have final authority from somewhere, and if you deny that it lies in the Bible, then you've got to come up with something equally as authoritative as the Bible. And so the Catholics come up with things like the infallibility of the Pope. And of course, you've only got to look through their history and you can understand why it is that the Catholic Church has got and still is getting into such a terrible mess. I mean, some of the real horror stories about the Catholic Church, they're, they're not happening now. I mean, things like selling indulgences. I mean, what they used to do was sort of teach that this thing that when you die you go to purgatory, all right, and there you're refined in hellfire until all, all your undealt with areas are burnt up and then eventually you pass into heaven. You see, I mean, absolutely crazy. Not a word in the Bible about it, but they believe in that, all right. And so then what they used to do was sell indulgences. You could pay a priest who would then pray for your loved one who had just died, and his prayers would help them along to get into heaven quicker. And so, I mean, so they, they made millions out of it, you see, because all these gullible people, I mean, mum or dad died, or auntie Edna, and of course you've got to, you know, pay the priests in order to pray them through purgatory a bit quicker. I mean, things like that don't happen today. But you've... Oh, yeah, that's right, they still believe in purgatory, but some of the more horrendous, unethical sort of practices um, have died out a bit in most places. But the point is, all the crazy doctrines, I mean, sort of uh, sort of things like sort of praying to the saints and all this sort of thing, the only safeguard against it is to have the Bible as your final authority. And anyone who doesn't have the Bible as their final authority, born-again Christian or not, is going to get into trouble. Because Satan is a deceiver. Satan is cleverer than you, he'll out-argue you at every turn, turn, 
he'll make mincemeat out of you in regards to intellectual understanding. I mean, Satan, left to himself, he'll get you believing that black is white. Give him long enough, he'll convince you that black is white. He's that clever. But the point is that because we have the Bible as our final authority, the minute that Satan starts to try and get me believing black is white, the whole point is I don't have to even listen to what he's saying. Because I simply say, but Satan, the word of God says, and it's the end of the argument. Can you see? A Bible-believing Christian doesn't need to argue with Satan. Whereas a Christian who doesn't have the Bible as his final authority is going to be open to get into all kinds of really weird things. Now, we've spoken about the Catholic Church. But also, if you take people like Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mormons, or whatever, it's always the same thing. They have an authority which is above the Bible. Now, they parade as Christian, and they knock on your door, and they're carrying the Bible. And it's always the Bible they quote from at the beginning. They tell you about Jesus. And so you think, well, here they are, they're coming as Christians with their Bibles. They look orthodox. But the point is that as soon as you really get into what they're saying, be it JWs, be it Mormons, be it any sect you like to name, the whole point is this. They have an authority which is above the Bible and which judges the Bible. For instance, the JWs, they've got the watchtower. They've got their elite leaders who are prophets. And the point is, they judge the Bible by their prophets, you see. So if their prophets say something that the Bible doesn't agree with, the Bible was wrong in that little bit. But they're quite happy with the rest of it, you see. Whereas for us, what we have to do, any teaching I give has got to be tested by the Bible. Can you see that? If you take the Mormons, what for a Mormon is the final authority? Is it the Bible or is it the Book of Mormon? It's the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. They, that is the final authority for them. And so this is the divide between us and the sectarian movements. All right. Now, the Catholic Church is slightly different in that I accept that there are many, many born-again Christians in it, all right? That doesn't make the Catholic Church right, but it means that there are born-again believers in the Catholic Church. That's just a matter of fact. We have to accept that. There are. But the point is that, be it the sects or the Catholics, the vital thing is that we have got to be under the Bible as our final authority. Now, sadly, even in fundamental, uh, sort of fundamentalist Bible-believing circles, you still get an awful lot of examples of when, in actual fact, born-again, Bible-believing, fundamentalist Christians have certain things which are more authoritative, authoritative to them than the Bible is. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I'll give you an example, the most obvious, tradition. For many Christians, the Bible is not the final authority. It's their tradition. Now, as soon as I say that, can you see that that lands them right in the lap of the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church became and continues to be so deceived because it put the tradition of the Church above the Scriptures. Now, many Orthodox, Bible-believing Christians do exactly the same. But they don't do it with major doctrines. I mean, if you sat down and talked about doctrines with these believers, they'll agree with everything you say. But there are certain things which the Bible clearly says, but they have no time for. A classic example, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
And there are many born-again believers who accept the authority of the Word of God, except in the area of the gifts of the Spirit. And then they really don't care what the Word of God says, they're not having it. Can you see what I mean? And that is exactly what makes a sect a sect. That is exactly what makes the Catholics the Catholics. It's refusing to submit to the teaching of the Word of God as your final authority. Uh, take something like uh, sort of women wearing hats in church or the churches where, for instance, women can't speak in church. Now this is a tradition. Over years, certain passages of the Bible were totally misunderstood, all right? Totally and utterly misunderstood, all right? And churches got into wrong teaching. They started to make the women shut up in services by just misunderstanding the actual bits of the Bible that said that, all right, they got it wrong. Uh, they made them wear hats and be all sort of very submissive and silent and stuff like that, having totally misunderstood the Bible. But now, if you go to these people and demonstrate clearly that their forebears got it wrong and it was false teaching, that's not going to change them. Because at rock bottom, that's how they do it, and they're not interested in what the Bible says. Can you see that basic pride and rebellion against God? And do you remember what Jesus said to the Jews? He said, for the sake of tradition, you make void the word of God. And this is exactly what all of us can fall into doing. Um, I mean, it's like for some reason, traditionally, in some churches, and I mean, I'm talking about some pretty gross and backward ones at the moment, but apparently, I mean, a very strong teaching, and I mean, it's very difficult to understand this, but one of the very strong teachings I've, I've known in some churches is that the musical instrument, the musical instrument that God countenances is an organ. It is not a guitar. Now, isn't this incredible? And this is a major point for some Christians. I mean, walk in there with a guitar and expect to leave worship, and I mean, you're out. For some weird reason, it has got to be led on the organ. Can you see what I'm saying? Now, this is as pathetic, it's as pathetic and as stupid as saying that Mary was born immaculately without sin. Can you see? But the point is that, 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 that we tend to have our traditional way of doing things and that we refuse to budge on what the Word of God says. And so this is how we get into the kind of chaos that we tend to get into. Things like infant baptism. You know, I mean, okay, I know it's an established tradition, but the fact that the Word of God totally demonstrates that infant baptism is invalid, except in, a re in cases where a whole family is converted, if a whole family got converted under the Jews, then they would be baptised and they'd even have their babies done. All right. No problem. If I had a family all converted, mum and dad and the kids, and there was a little baby there, would get the baby in as well. The early church did do that. All right. But the point is, that is a far cry from coming up with the doctrine that you've got to baptise a baby in order to get it to be a member of the church, quite regardless of whether the parents are born again or not. Can you see what I'm getting at? But again, it's a tradition. And the sadness is that for many people, their final authority is not the Bible. It's their own tradition and ways of doing things. Well, the idea of confirmation is being baptised in the Holy Spirit, believe it or not. That's where it comes from. Well, in that sense, I agree with you, they can't. I mean, to practice confirmation is another example of doing something that is totally unbiblical, 
but it's become an established sort of kind of tradition. That's right. I mean, what it's I mean, it's like the bishop. He has the mitre with a flame on, doesn't he? You ever <coughs> notice that the squiggle, squiggle, it's the flame. It's the flame of Pentecost, and he lays hands on them. You see. And that to impart the spirit. It's, yeah, that's right. And he says, I confirm you with the Holy Spirit, which of course is utter heresy. For a man to say, I confirm you with the Holy Spirit, is utter heresy. I mean, it would be like if I laid hands on you and said, I baptize you in the name of the Spirit, that's lunatic. I can say, receive the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, but Jesus is a baptizer in the Spirit. And it's another example of taking the things of God and, and sort of just turning them into a kind of a traditional way of doing things, but then your way of doing things becomes more authoritative than the Word of God itself. Now, if we're to be consistent, if we're to be guiltless in this, and we all need deliverance from it, you know, to a certain extent, you see, it's all very well to say, I accept the Bible as the final authority. The Bible is God's Word. The Bible is God's authority in my life. That is the teaching of the Bible. Then we can be saying, I accept the Bible as the final authority. But can you see that if you reject certain little bits of it, what you're then saying is, I accept that the Bible is the final authority in my life, except for this, this, this and this. And if you've got a this, this, this and this which are accepted, that denies that the Bible is the final authority in your life. Can you see it? The Bible is final authority, lock, stock and barrel, and as soon as there's something in there that you're saying, no, that's not for me, I'm not going to submit to that, that's not how I do it, can you see that then, the minute you do that, even if it's in the tiniest thing, your final authority has then become yourself. Can you see what I'm getting at? If there's even one tiny little bit in the Bible that you're not going to stand for, and you're going to say no to that, don't accept that, then you are the final authority because you are judging the Bible. Can you see, you are then testing the Bible and parts of it you have found wanting and you've thrown out. The whole idea of the Bible is to test you. It's to get rid of that little bit in you, not for you to get rid of that little bit in the Bible you don't like. Do you see this concept? The Bible is final authority in everything or it all falls to bits. I mean, picture it like um, the astronauts up in the space stations, all right? Now then, there they are, they've got their air, no problem. It's a, a contained unit. But can you see, if a tiny, even if a tiny little, say a, a minuscule meteor pierces their little space station, tiniest little hole, give it long enough and they're dead, because all the air goes out. Now, can you see that even if there's a tiny little bit of the Bible that you won't submit to, can you see that all your air is going to escape and eventually you're going to be sunk? Because what that means is that you're not sitting under the Bible as your final authority. I mean, I've had to throw away and judge and discard some of my dearest and longest held beliefs. I really have. I mean, when I got converted, I can see this so clearly now, but when I got converted, I bought in years and years of indoctrination and brainwashing that I received in the world, all right? And I've been indoctrinated by the devil, all right? My indoctrination would be vastly different from yours, but you were indoctrinated as well. You were totally, utterly blinded by the God of this world. 
you you sort of uh, watched the news, you read the periodicals, and you sucked in every doctrine of demons that was flying around. Evolution, you swallowed it, lock, stock and barrel. Socialism, heaving it down. I loved socialism. Oh, I used to slurp it up. I This is it. This is the answer to everything. And the, what happened was that when I got converted, I brought all those sort of all that indoctrination all my dearly held beliefs through into the kingdom of God with me what I then tried to do and this is what many Christians do I then proceeded to Christianize the philosophy I held before I got converted you see so I was then a, a sort of a rabid Christian socialist <laughs> now I'm not knocking socialism lock stock and barrel I'm not knocking socialism lock stock and barrel but there were certain, I mean, it's like every good socialist really abhors the idea of capital punishment. And I did. There's nothing more barbaric to me than the idea of civilised men and women hanging murderers. Sheer revenge in my mind. And then as a Christian I had to come up, had to face that God commanded capital punishment. And can you see there was a clash of ideology between myself and God? And, I mean, so looking back, the presumption of it, I tried to change God's mind. I mean, he, he didn't, he changed mine. But the whole point was that slowly, and it took a long, long time, it's still going on to a certain extent, but I had to learn to submit my ideology to the scriptures. And I found an awful lot of it was wrong, plain wrong. Even more unnerving, though, was this. You see, when I got converted, I mean, I had all, all the worldly guns, all the ideology in that. But when I got converted, I, I dived into the Word of God, and it was fascinating. And God really taught me. And opened, I didn't have anyone to teach me. You know, it's, it's, I, I mean, I was the only person I met who could teach the Bible. And I was the new convert. I mean, I was explaining things. After I got converted, the Holy Spirit just gave me light. And I used to explain things to people who have been Christians for years. They should have been teaching me. I ended up teaching them. And the Lord really taught me. But the point is that in with the Lord genuinely teaching me, also I was sucking in all my own mistaken ideas about the Bible as well. You see. And therefore, after you've gone on a bit with the Lord, I mean, not only have you by then started to, to sort of discard everything you believed in before you got converted, but then comes the, I mean, ignominious state where you're then discarding some of your favourite doctrines that you fell in love with when you got converted and have been preaching faithfully ever since. And then you've got to start discarding them because they were wrong as well. Can you see that? I mean, I was a fervent believer in the fact that if you got baptised in the Spirit, that was it. And as soon as we've got everyone in the kingdom baptised in the Holy Spirit, that was it. Revival's going to come. I couldn't have been more mistaken. But enough take God a long time to show me that, that was a false doctrine. I mean, being baptised in the Spirit, fantastic, that is a true doctrine. But to think that that is the answer is absolute lunacy. The baptism with the Spirit is the beginning. And the Holy Spirit comes down on you in wind, power, but fire as well to purify. And that takes years and years and years. And there were various other things. You know, I mean, I used to, uh, I used to chuck around this thing a little bit. I never, I never got heavy on this because I was too frightened of it. But when I used to be convinced that you could lose your salvation, every now and then, I mean, when I met rebellious Christians, I had to drop that in. It's for their own good, wasn't it, you see? And I mean, and to let that go. What? You can't lose your salvation? What about her? 
I'm not living like her. Why should she go to heaven, you see? And, and you start, even the doctrines that you got wrong, you have to be prepared to submit them all to the Word of God. And so all the time, I mean, all the time I'm discovering things where maybe a couple of years ago I think back, oh yeah, I remember teaching that. And it was wrong. You know, it was wrong. But no, you know, that doesn't mean I'm a false teacher. It just means that all the time we've got to be judging ourselves in everything we do and everything we believe purely 100% by the Word of God. Another example, and this is quite a topical one, so a lot of this goes on today amongst spirit-filled Christians. Again, the question, what is the final authority? Is it the Bible or is it the church? Now we've got a new Catholicism that has emerged amongst spirit-filled Christians. And it's the shepherding movement. Because in the shepherding movement classic, the classic hardliners, what you have there is that you have a pyramid of authority with so-called apostles, and I mean that so-called apostles, alright, who have absolute authority over certain other men who are under them. And this all goes down in various layers. And so there you are, the poor little sheep, bleating away. And you've got a shepherd who's over you. Now the point is, God speaks to you through that shepherd. And you can't move without going to shepherd to find out if it's right or not. Now that shepherd has got an elder over him, you see. But this elder who's got prophets are above him and, and the apostles are above the prophets. The problem comes with who's going to be chief apostle. And I mean, this changes. You know, the names changes, you see. Because, I mean, one gets beaten up, you know, by all the others, they gang up. And, and this is why, amongst things like that, they're always splitting off and arguing. But can you see the same principle? What they're saying is the church, or more specifically, the top dogs in the church, are the final authority. Therefore, they teach, and this is horrendous, and, and they actually teach this, that if your shepherd is wrong about something, even if he tells you to do something, even if you know that he's wrong about it, you've got to submit to him and just trust that God will sort him out. I mean, that is, that is lunacy. I mean, you don't have to do anything that anyone says if it goes against the word of God. And can you see a Catholicism all over again? And so for us, I mean, the final thing has got to be total submission to the Bible. It's firstly very, very restricting. Because if you're going to stick and submit to the Bible, then obviously, I mean, there's a lot of you that gets trimmed off. Alright? It's like down at Sainsbury's, they promise to trim all the fat off the joints, don't they? Well, that's exactly the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he can be a bit of a butcher at times, you know. I mean, not that he's rough with you, but he trims away, he cuts back. It's what Jesus says, abiding me and I in you. And he says, if a branch bear much fruit, he prunes it, he cuts it back. And God will cut us back through the word of God. So it's restrictive in that sense. There's a rub to it. But the beauty is this. It's also so liberating. Because it means you can live in freedom. Because your final boss is the Bible. And because it's the Bible, it's impartial. Can you see? You don't have to live in fear of perhaps your minister's going to go up the spout. You see what I mean? Because you're in submission to Jesus, which means being in submission to the Bible. Can you see it sets you free? I mean, other Christians can pressure you all they want to do something that's wrong, but you're in submission to the Bible, and it sets you free from the pressure of men. So, it's a restrictive thing, but at the same time, it's a freedom thing. 
Because to live in freedom means that you're living in submission to Jesus himself and the will of Jesus is revealed to you through the Bible. That doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to speak to you directly. Of course he will. He'll speak to you supernaturally. But the point is, every time he does, you've got to test that with the word of God. And if what Jesus has said to you doesn't go against the word of God, then it was Jesus. But if what Jesus says to you does go against the word of God, it wasn't Jesus. It was Satan pretending to be Jesus. Can you see what I'm getting at? So we're safe. We're secure. We're home dry. We can sort of like feed in peace. We can feed in the pasture. We're sheep. We can get on with the business of eating and growing and the sheep eat grass, but we feed on Jesus himself. We eat Jesus. We get full of Jesus. We can get on with the job of feeding on Jesus and growing more and more like him without having to worry about all these other things that come upon you the minute that you leave the Bible as being your final authority. Um, is, is, does that help? Yes. Actually, asking about the actual confession box. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I haven't forgotten about that. <clears throat> I'll come back onto that. This specific thing. Yeah. Now, again, with the Catholic Church and with any of the sects, all right, their particular doctrines and whether they're biblical or unbiblical aren't the point. The point is that their final authority is something other than the Bible. Therefore, if you chatted to a Catholic, you'd have lots of doctrines that you both held in common, lots of things you both believed, but there'd be things you didn't agree on. And that would be the same with the Jehovah's Witness. If you spoke to a Jehovah's Witness about certain characteristics of God the Father, you'd be in agreement, all right. But in lots of other things, you wouldn't. Now, the thing about confession, or the confessional, is this. Now, we've got to understand but Jesus did say to the church, i.e. the twelve, all right, they received the Holy Spirit, i.e. they were born again, all right, and immediately they were born again, they became priests, all right, the priesthood of all believers. Now, the work of a priest is to mediate between God and man, all right, that is the work of a priest. The priest stands with his people and represents them before God. Now, Jesus was our great high priest. Because he was at one time God and at the other time man, which is finally what the priest had to be. So therefore there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus can take the hand of God because he's God. And he can take my hand because he's man and no problem. He brings us together just like that. Now everyone now can get directly to God without going through men by getting to Jesus. Can you see that? As soon as you've got to Jesus, you've got to God. You don't need a man now to stand between you and Jesus. All right. But you're a believer. But can you see the work of our work to the unsaved is that we are the ones who bring them to Jesus. Therefore, in a sense, our priesthood is that we mediate between them and Jesus. Now, also amongst each other. Because we're saved, all of us, I mean, we've got a telephone line to the Lord. All of us. Each one of us. But there are times when you can't use your access to Jesus on your own. you see what I mean? And the reason you can't isn't because it isn't available, it's because there's something wrong with you. you see what I mean? Say a Christian, he's confessed a sin, but he still feels condemned. He's not condemned, but he feels condemned. He's got free access to God, but he doesn't use it because he's feeling condemned. 
Therefore, in that sense, as priests, there are times when I need to bring you to Jesus. You could get there on your own, but for whatever reason you're not, so I can help you. And it's the same with me. I may be in a, a tough spot, not trusting the Lord, need a bit of help, and you come and be my priest. You lead me to Jesus, because for whatever reason, I don't believe I can get to him myself. I can, but I don't believe it, you see. Now, in that sense, all right, we truly do have authority to retain or forgive sins. Now, let's think about forgiveness of sins first. If you confess your sins, all right, you're forgiven. And if you sin against the Lord, it is between you and God. You do not ever have to go to confess to a man in order for your sins to be forgiven. So if you've sinned against God, Jesus is your priest, you can get straight to the Lord, confess it, and be right with him. And yet, in James, that letter tells us, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Now, that's not a contradiction. We can get through to the Lord for ourselves any time. But because of our weakness and our unbelief, there are these times when we need each other's help. Therefore, we must use each other's help. And can you see it would be a foolish Christian who was unable to get through to God on their own because they're in trouble. They can, but they're not able to. You see what I'm getting at? They've got the authority, but they're not using it. They're condemned or screwed up or something like that. Now, at that point, you need someone else to step in and bridge that gap between you and Jesus to bring you back together again. But you'd be a foolish Christian if you didn't use it. Wouldn't you be crazy if your pride got in the way? Therefore, there's a very real sense in which confession to somebody is a good thing. Now, that means that if you ever need to come to me, and I'm talking now at the moment about sins that are just between you and God, because I'm going to deal with retaining sin in a minute, and that's, that's a little bit heavier, but still true. But the point is, say you've got out of fellowship with God, you're confessing whatever it is, but you don't feel back in fellowship with God. Well, it could be that what you need is to go to someone who can just minister that forgiveness to you. So say you come to me, all right, and you're all screwed up, and I say, well, look, have you confessed this? And you say, yes. Now, can you see that you've come and confessed that to me? I then know that you're clear with God, and I can then pray for you, and I can come against that satanic yuck, whatever is keeping you away from God. And can you see, I, in that sense, on behalf of Jesus, I'm forgiving your sins man to man, because at that moment, that's what you need. Can you see what I mean? You just need someone to stand in the gap between you and Jesus. Now, we have that authority. So it simply means, if you need ever to sort of come to me or anyone else and confess something that's burdening you, I've done this in the past. Times when I've sinned, and I've known that, that the Lord's forgiven me, but I've needed to have that ministered by the body of Christ. Can you see what I'm getting at? I haven't gone to them believing that I will only be forgiven when I've done that. I've gone to them for them to minister and to bring the spiritual power and reality of that home to me. So in that sense, okay, we can forgive each other's sins. Now then, also we can retain sins as well. Now this is a little bit heavier, and the only reason it's heavier is because we're not used to it, because there is 
or should be, in the Church of Christ, there should be authority. There should be a right use of authority. And after all, we're children of God, God's daddy, and daddies have rules in the home. And if rules get broken, daddy does something about it, doesn't he? I mean, you do that to bring up children. Now, in this instance, obviously, we as God's children actually help him in his sort of, as he brings us up. Now, the point is this. I've already said that if you've confessed a sin, if you've sinned against God, against thee only have I sinned, O Lord. If you've, say, had wrong thoughts or you've been rebellious against God or something like that, you've done something that you know was wrong, well then, that's between you and God, okay? And as soon as you confess that to God, he forgives you. No problem whatsoever. But also, you may well have sinned against somebody else or even against a group of people. Like, for instance, rather than uh, just feeling a resentment for somebody, you might have given them verbal, all right? Now, the minute you've done that, your sin is no longer just between you and God. It is between you and God, because all sin is against God. But it's also between you and somebody else. Now, the teaching of Scripture is absolutely clear on this. In a situation like that, you cannot receive forgiveness from God until you have put yourself right with who you've sinned against. Can you see? There is that need to go and say, I'm sorry. And the teaching of the Bible is that if you don't do that, your repentance towards God is, is sheer claptrap. Can you see that? I mean, it's dead easy to say sorry to God who you can't see, but you see your brother you can see. Can you see that? The Bible says, how can you say you love God you haven't seen if you don't love your brother you have seen? So then, if you truly love God, then you sin against him, you want to put that right. But if you truly love God, you also love your brother or sister, which means you're going to want to put that right with them. So therefore, if you've sinned against somebody or a group of people, then in order to get that really right with God, you've got to obviously confess it to God, but you've just got to ask their forgiveness as well. No big deal. You know, I mean, we're not talking about cap in hand and crawling up their trouser leg, anything like that. We're just saying a simple, I'm sorry, that was wrong, forgive me. Whether they do or not isn't your problem, all right? But you've got to put that right. Now then, the point is this. Say you're burdened, all right? There's a sin, all right? You've got out of fellowship with God, and you're trying to get back into fellowship with God. But you've lost your peace, all right? You've lost your peace. And uh, so you've, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, and you're confessing this sin, and that, and so you need, say, to, I mean, I'm using me as an example because I know me better than anyone else here, all right? And say, you come to me and say, look, I'm confessing this sin, but I need to have the peace of it. And you're coming to me and asking me to use my authority as a priest in the body of Christ to forgive you your sins in the name of Jesus. But, as you come to me, either through what you tell me, or maybe even through a sort of like a discerning, a, a word of knowledge and stuff like that, I may realise and say to you, ah, now, was this sin against someone else as well, you see? And you may say, yes, you know, I mean, you lost their temper or sharp word, husband, wife, children, parents, whatever it is, you know, even little things like this or someone at work or whatever. Now, then I would have to say to you, well, I mean, okay, put it right with them. You know, just go and ask their forgiveness and then it's all clear between you and God. However... If you won't do that, and you dig your heels in, and it's sort of, well, I don't mind saying sorry to God, but I'm not saying sorry to them, oh. and a bit of that comes out, then you see, the point is this, I cannot bring forgiveness of your sins to you. 
Because God doesn't forgive. God doesn't get back in fellowship with you until you put it right with them. So I then say to you, well, I'm sorry, this sin is retained. I can't do a thing for you. Because you got out of fellowship with Jesus. And before you get back into fellowship with Jesus, you've got to put right what you did wrong. And if you're not willing to put it right, you can't get back into fellowship. So therefore, I retain your sin. Can you see what I'm getting at? And there you get a discipline in the body of Christ. I mean, we've got to bear with each other. Yeah, of course we have. But on the other hand, neither are we going to let each other get away with murder. There are standards in the Christian life, and the Lord wants us to grow up. So therefore, you can see that sense of retaining or forgiving sins. But, in regards to the Catholic Church, it's got slightly distorted. Now, the, their actual doctrine all right, is absolutely right. It's 100% right. The reason they've gone wrong on this one doctrine isn't their actual doctrine of retaining sins, because they say that it's got to be done by a priest. And that is 100% right. It's got to be done by a priest. Only a priest can forgive or retain sins. But the point is this. We're all priests, men and women, in the kingdom. As soon as you're born again, you are a priest. Now, their mistake, and this is where you've got to sort of bung in other churches as well, who aren't way off heretics like the Catholics, but they've got their own funny little things about this. And, uh, I mean, some actually have a priesthood. Others, even in free churches, they say, oh, no, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, but it doesn't change the fact there's the bloke standing up there every Sunday morning, and he does everything, you see. And they don't believe in the priesthood of all believers at all. They believe in a minister or a priest. So the point about the Catholics, they're right here to have this idea of going to a priest when you need to, to confess. Where they're wrong about it, well, I mean, firstly, they would require that you confess all your sins to a priest, which isn't needed at all. You must confess them all to Jesus, but you only need to turn to a priest in the household of God when you haven't been able to get through on your own. I mean, the priest is just there to give you a shove up if you need it. But they're right about the thing about the priesthood. You must go to a priest. But of course, we're all priests, and it's wrong to have a special caste of priests in the church. So therefore, in regards to this, I'm totally, if you like, Catholic. I believe in confession of sin to priests, which means that there are times when I need to go to the body of Christ to clear something up. You see, and it can be a man, it can be a woman, it can be a little child who's a believer. It just has to be a priest, i.e. any believer in Jesus. And when you need it, you're not under bondage to this. It's just if you need that sense of actually having forgiveness proclaimed to you in the name of Jesus by a brother or sister, rather than simply receiving it direct from God in the witness of the Spirit. So that's, that's sort of the difference there. But remember, you're priests. We're all priests, men and women as well. Oh, that's right. Yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> we, we got there in the end. <laughs> uh, there is the thing I asked. Yeah. It arose out of something you, you said earlier when you were talking about Jesus being a man and therefore being in all points tempted as we are. Mm. Um, in James, there's a rather awkward verse. James chapter 1, verse 
13, where it says, Were you tempted? Uh, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Mm. But then in verse 14, it says, But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Mm. Then after desire is conceived, it, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when he's full grown, gives birth to, mm. to death. Now, that bit about evil desire, I've, I've, got, I've got it underlined. I must have got this from somewhere else. And mm. I've got strong desire written beside it, which I've just inked in. Yeah. So does that really mean what it says? Because Jesus keeps having evil desire. He is so right? Yeah, with this, um, I don't know the Greek offhand, but it's one of those things I'm pretty 90% sure that if I went into the Greek, you'd find that it's a bad translation and that it needn't necessarily mean evil desire. For instance, in the version that I'm using, it hasn't got evil desire. It's got his own desire. Simply saying, desire. Now, of course, the whole point is, even when Adam and Eve were sinless, even before they sinned, the point was that when God created men and women, on the face of the earth, that necessarily meant that they had to have the freedom to go with evil. Mm. Can you see what I mean? Mm. The fact that you've got a potential to veer towards evil doesn't mean you're evil of yourself. Mm. Because if Adam and Eve were to be truly free moral agents, which they were, they had free will, that's part of being a man, all right? It meant also that when evil came along, they weren't impervious to its pull. It was up to them. So in that sense, good and evil lay potentially dormant in them. Now, of course, God, in his state as deity, Father, Son, and Spirit, all right, there is no pull towards sin in them whatsoever. It just simply doesn't exist. Now, when it says that we're created in the image of God, obviously that is a true concept, but it's a limited one. For instance, we cannot be infinite. We are finite, but God is infinite. But that characteristic cannot be in men, whereas other ones are. For instance, God is, has got free will. Well, that's one we do share. So the point is that men, or mankind, equals the potential for evil. Doesn't mean you're already evil to have the potential. It means that even in a sinless state, the potential for evil, if put in front of you, must be there. So therefore, when the second person of the Trinity became a man, though sinless, even so, that potential for evil lay in him merely because he had become a man. He never succumbed to it, he never sinned, but that potential had to be in him. So the point is here that obviously what James is saying, that God doesn't tempt you with sin. It's always Satan who puts temptation in your way. And what he's saying here, the point is you're tempted and lured, and I mean really tempting and luring is the same thing. But the danger point comes not when you're tempted. There is nothing wrong with temptation whatsoever. Jesus was tempted. And when Jesus went into the wilderness, it's a bit unfortunate because we've got three temptations that are actually listed. We tend to think that Satan tried three and then hopped it. 
Now, if you read Luke's account, there's a little bit at the end that said, and when Satan had finished every temptation, every, it's just that only three are recorded. Satan tempted Jesus with everything under the sun. Now, there's nothing wrong with being tempted, but it's when the temptation, you realise it's wrong, and there's even, shall we say, a pull to it. I mean, it's like, for instance, um, I mean, there are some things which, I mean, if you take, for instance, sexual desire, it's not wrong to have sexual desire. God has created us with sexual desire. Now, the only reason we can fall into sexual sin is because we've got sexual desire. But that doesn't mean sexual desire is wrong. You see what I'm getting at? All things are pure to the pure in heart. It only becomes, the desire only becomes evil when you surrender to the evil use of that desire. Like when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, his desire was to eat. There was nothing wrong in that. But Satan said, cast that stone, sorry, make that stone into bread. Now at that point, Jesus would have actually succumbed. I'll bet Jesus wanted to. And when Satan said to him, Cars, you know, turn that into bread, I'll bet Jesus thought, that's a, that's a really good idea. That wasn't sin, but the point was, he didn't do it. That's the thing. And I heard it put like this once, you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And that's the point. And, and the birds fly over our head, we've got no control over that, but we don't have to let them nest in our head, in our hair. Yeah, sure. Um, can you just press pause? Orange. Phil. You saying when you when you get tempted that that isn't wrong? It's it's until you yeah. actually do it that's wrong. Yeah. That's right. It's the act. Right. But isn't there a verse in the Bible that says that you can think something and thinking that is in God's eyes is as bad as doing it? Right. But you see again, it's exactly the same principle. Now say um. You see, when, let's say Satan and Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and the Satan says, turn the stone into bread. Now, for Jesus, I mean, obviously, in order for a temptation to be a temptation, it's got to actually lodge in your mind. Can you see that? There's got to be um, a cognitive process. You've got to actually receive it. I mean, if Satan had whispered to Jesus and said to him, um, turn that stone into bread, just as a Boeing 747 flew over his head and Jesus didn't hear the temptation, then it wouldn't have been a temptation at all. So the point is, in order for, in order for it to be a temptation, the actual idea of doing it has, has got to actually lodge in your mind. Otherwise, you haven't even heard it, and so you haven't been tempted. I you suppose, see what I mean? I suppose Jesus, who had just been baptised in the Spirit and had just heard his father say, this is my beloved son, and you are my well pleased. And I think probably Jesus came right, came into an absolute true knowledge of his of his God, of his, you know, the fact that he was God. Oh, yeah. He came down to earth, so therefore, Satan was tempting him along the lines when you know you're God, and you can turn this... Yeah. That these, these loads into bread, but it was tempting him to use his power in the wrong way, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I think the push behind the temptation yeah. was in fact to get Jesus to do 
the very thing that earlier on tonight I said was the one thing he couldn't do. It was to try to get Jesus to use his own power. Yeah. You see, his inherent power as Godhead or deity. Whereas Jesus had to lay that aside and just rely on the Father's strength and the Holy Spirit's strength. But the whole thing about the push was that, whereas that's what Saint was trying to get him to do, the thing is he'd been fasting for 40 days and would have been starving, you see. I mean, hence the form of that particular temptation. Now, if you've got Jesus standing there, um, okay, and he's hungry, and he hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, um, so the idea is put in his mind to do that thing. All right, which if he'd done it at that time, it would have been sin anyway, because his father had called him to fasting. But the point is that the temptation had to register consciously in Jesus' mind. Because if it hasn't registered, and if, you hadn't ha and if you haven't had a little think about it, at least to understand the concept, you haven't been tempted. I don't know if you can see what I'm saying. For instance, you can't be tempted uh, by a loose woman on the other side of town. I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at. The temptation has got to come home to you in order to be temptation. So the point is that Jesus would have fully registered me hungry, stone could be bread, all right? Yum, yum, okay? Because that's the human response. Now, up to that point, there's nothing wrong with it. Jesus, as it were, he has received the idea, okay? And perhaps he thought, Yes, good idea, yum yum, in the sense, what ho? But the whole thing was this. Having understood what the temptation was, he instantly rejected it. He didn't entertain the notion. That's the point. He then stood against it and rejected him. it. Now, if you say, take the thing um, that Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Now, the point is this, that, I mean, for a man to respond to a pretty girl walking down the road is no different from an art dealer who responds to a Van Gogh. Can you see that? Beauty is there, it gets a response from us. So one can acknowledge the beauty therein. Absolutely no problem at all. Uh, one can drive down the road and see a beautiful Mercedes 500 SL drive past you and you can say, what a beautiful machine. And you can no problem. That is an aesthetic response to something, no problem at all. But, as it said, it's not the first look that does the damage, it's the second. By which we mean this. If you see a pretty girl, do you want to go one step beyond simply saying there is, or for a girl, this could be Richard Gere walking down the road. And I mean, one, you know, if a girl sort of, oh, it's Richard Gere, well, that's no problem. Yes, you see, there goes Belinda. Now, to respond and to say, well, I mean, he, you know, here is what man is all about, okay, and to say, oh, isn't he lovely? No problem at all. It's not the first look, but it's if you want to go one step beyond and, de and desire the illegitimate ownership and participation in that beauty. Can you see? Uh, so, let's go back to our Merc. I mean, if I see a Merc moving down the road, I think, well, what a super machine. And it is. It's terrific. I love them. I think they, I just love fast, flashy cars. Well, not flashy, but good cars. They, they do something to me. All right. Music is very similar. But the point is this, that the, to look and admire, no problem. But if I then think, I want one, can you see, and I covet it, 
then I've fallen into sin. So can you see, you've got to receive the idea, but it's whether you respond to the idea or whether, as it were, like a bird, you sort of take note of it and say, yeah, that's nice, and let it fly over your head without it nesting in your hair.